Heavenly Father, um, we love you. Um, even in those words that we just sang, oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? You are wonderful. Christ Jesus, you are wonderful. And what we need here today, Father, is, is for you to cross the great chasm between our feeling of insufficiency, our inability to understand and comprehend who you are, and that you would strengthen us so that we would know the love of Christ, so that we would know who Christ Jesus is and his great immeasurable love for us. So I pray that the next few minutes with my friends, Father, you would exalt your name, glorify your name for us, and that we would walk away from this place having encountered the living God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you've got a copy of God's Word with you, please grab it and turn to Colossians 1.25. So the name of our church is Risen Hope, and there's, uh, there's a reason. There's actually multiple reasons for that. Um, one of them is, is that uh, we recognized when we were thinking about what the name of the church was going to be, um, that whatever it was, it had to be obviously at the heart of what the church would be about, what it would stand for, um, how we would see and embrace the glory of Jesus Christ, and how we would see and embrace the purpose he has for his people. Um, and we ended up with Risen Hope, in part because we saw the need for God's hope in the place that we live, Kingsgate. Um, and, and that doesn't just end in Kingsgate, it extends out into the greater Seattle area and the whole world. Everywhere you are, there is a need, a profound need for hope. And my inclination, interestingly enough, um, when contemplating what the name would be, um, I, I have a predisposition, you probably have noticed it, to um, focus on the atoning work of Jesus Christ, what happened on the cross, and to focus on the glory of God. Those, those words are populate my vocabulary all the time. Um, and it can, it can populate my vocabulary to the point at which I don't say other things. And so one of the things, um, and, and the reason why those words populate my vocabulary is because they've gripped me in a big way. Um, but one of the things I want to do is I want to make sure when it comes to risen hope, when it comes to how we uh, love Jesus Christ and how we serve and love our neighborhood, that um, it is never disconnected from the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is never disconnected from what happened three days later when he rose from the dead, and that um, the hope that is provided in the resurrection is very clearly seen and embraced. Um, and so it's just a, an acknowledgement, our name is acknowledgement that it is not good news if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The gospel is not good news if we don't get to be with him forever. And so I want that it all, I, we wanted that to always be a reality um, of risen hope. The reason I'm bringing this up today is because in our text, our text brings this up, brings up this hope that we've talked about multiple times and we will always be talking about it because God talks about it a lot. And so this hope, when we talk about it, we've been, we've been looking at it from the perspective of the risen hope being the resurrection of the saints. 
that we will be with Christ forever. And that's a true thing. That is a right and good thing. The Bible teaches that, and it is true. And if we lose that, we lose it to our own peril. However, there is an aspect of risen hope, an aspect of the glory that is in the resurrection that is for us today. It is for our lives today. It's not just a future hope. It is a hope that we embrace, and it has meaning today in our lives. And that's what I want to spend today looking at. So Colossians 1.25, we're going to look at that. We're going to start a few words into it with, I became. Paul says this to the Colossian church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To God, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's been, for the past few weeks for us, outlining um, his ministry. And he refers to it as, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, as the ministry of reconciliation. And although Paul is given a particular stewardship over the church, a, a, a kind of responsibility over the church for this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation isn't exclusive to Paul. It isn't exclusive to the apostles. It isn't exclusive to any of the disciples that Jesus had. It isn't exclusive to just early Christians the ministry of reconciliation is a ministry that is embraced by every single person who confesses Jesus Christ. All believers are to proclaim the message of reconciliation, the gospel. And we know this first and foremost because Scripture commands us to do this. Matthew 28 talks about it's the Great Commission, baptizing the nations um, and making them disciples for Christ Jesus. Acts 1 says the same thing. It is the entire warp and woof of the New Testament, and the New Testament takes it very, very seriously. Um, for example, in Luke 9, <clears throat> there's a story about Jesus. It's very short. It's like a verse and a half, maybe. Um, there's a story about Jesus encountering a man, and he, and he sees this man, and he says, follow me to the man. He's bidding the man to come follow him. And the man tells him, um, my father just died. Let me bury my father first, and then I'll come, and I'll follow you. That's effectively what he says. And so how does Jesus respond to him? Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think at first blush, we probably look at that and say, man, he is harsh with these people. Um, it's his dad. Um, but we have to recognize that Jesus never says anything arbitrarily. He never says anything unnecessary. There's a reason why he used those words. And I think there's two different things that he wants us to see in, in that response. First, the most important thing in the world is to follow him. There is nothing more important than that. In the world, bearing your father is probably up at the top of the list. But it is infinitely less significant than actually following Christ Jesus. He says, let the dead bury the dead. If you want to live, follow me. And that's huge. But secondly, and this is really where the focus is for today, Jesus in this text 
compares following him with going and proclaiming the gospel. He says, follow me, go and proclaim the, gospel, the kingdom of God. There's no distinction in Jesus' mind about following him. Following him is synonymous with proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is not a, an apostle. This man is a random dude, unnamed in the scriptures. We have no idea who he is. And he's told, if you follow Jesus Christ, you do what Jesus does. And what does Jesus do? He proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the kingdom of God. And we actually get an amazing example of this in the book of Colossians. So we talked about this guy before, Epaphras. Colossians 1, 7 tells us that this man, Epaphras, was the man that the Colossian Christians came to believe through. He is the man who, who they came to hear the gospel through, and he, the community grew up under his leadership. Um, now, Epaphras is not an apostle. He's not a disciple of Jesus. He is a normal believer. And most theologians actually believe that he was in Ephesus, so Colossae is over here, over over here, and Ephesus is over here, about 100 miles in, in, across in Asia Minor, and most theologians believe that he heard the gospel during Paul's three-year stint that we see in the book of Acts in Ephesus, and Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and <laughs> most theologians believe that Epaphras heard that, took the gospel, believed it, and brought it back to Colossae, and we find out that he eventually comes back and goes to Paul, who's in Rome, uh, most people believe. And Paul is imprisoned, and he says to Paul, the reason this letter is written to, to the Colossians, he says, there are teachers here who are teaching something different than the gospel. They are adding something to the gospel. And when Paul, when Epaphras visits Paul in prison, Paul says, I'll write a letter. I've dealt with this thing before. He writes a letter to the Colossian Christians, and Epaphras does not bring it back to them. The reason why is Epaphras gets thrown into prison, according to Philemon verse 23, with Paul. And they have to send Tychicus back with the letter. And that's how we get this letter in our hands. The book of Colossians came through Paul, or through Tychicus, from Paul, while he was in prison. And I'm not just bringing this up for a history lesson. I want to connect the dots here because the church in Colossae and the church in Ephesus have a lot of similarities. And we're going to be looking at the letter to the Ephesians today. Um, both of them had a large amount of Gentiles in their bodies. And Paul was desperate for them to know, these Gentile believers, how big, how vast, how massive God's plan of redemption was where it came from, and where it was headed. And so what you have is this astonishing, if you read them side by side, connection between the letter to the church in Colossae and the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's really remarkable. And we'll be spending most of our time looking at that today. I want to look back at this passage here. Um, Paul says, in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So in this ministry, Paul is saying, 
I am making the word of God fully known, the gospel fully known. That's his purpose. That's his stewardship. But then he tells us something remarkable. And Todd Shaw asked about this last week, and he's not here today, so he's not going to hear the answer to this, unfortunately. But um, he says, this word of God is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The mystery. He refers to the word of God as the mystery. What does he mean by that? Well, the word mystery in the Greek is musterion, and what it means is, it can mean mystery or secret. So your translations will render one of those two things. Um, But it doesn't mean those words precisely in the way that we come to understand them today. This isn't a murder mystery. This isn't something that we unravel or figure out. Um, This isn't like the Bible code. Remember the Bible code from the 90s? Who remembers that? This isn't that. (laughs) Um, That's not what's intended here. This mystery is an aspect of reality, a fact that exists in reality that is only revealed when God decides for it to be revealed at an appointed time. It is an aspect of reality that is not clear until God reveals it, at least completely clear. And that's what mystery means here. And we see it in Paul's language. Paul says that God is revealing this mystery through his ministry, through him proclaiming the word of God. It was hidden for ages and generations, but now it is being revealed, and it's being revealed to a specific group of people. It's being revealed to the saints. Now, next week, we're going to look at how God actually reveals this to, to the saints. Um, and there's a little, it's a little bit controversial, but we're going to look at how he actually reveals it to the, to the saints. This week, I want to focus on two questions. I want to ask the question, what is this mystery? What is this mystery, and why is it so important? Why exactly is it so important? And verse 27 actually gives us a clue to what it is and why it's so important. It says this in verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul is saying that God is revealing to his saints something incredible. He is revealing something that has been hidden for generations and ages. This is an amazing thing. And he's revealing to them how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glory, the glory that's in this mystery. And what is this mystery? Paul says it here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So something about this mystery involves the indwelling of Christ Jesus. Christ being within his own people. And somehow that reality relates to the hope of glory. There's a connection between, between the two, between the indwelling of Christ, between Christ in you and this hope of glory. And so what is the connection? And why is it so important? Why does Paul mention it in this letter? To answer that, I want to turn to Ephesians 3, which is just a few pages to the left if you're using a physical Bible. And while we look at Ephesians 3, and really we're going to float around a few chapters in Ephesians, I want you to hold in your mind this passage 
Colossians 1.27, the language that Paul uses, the words he uses, how he describes this mystery while we're actually diving deep into it in, in the book of Ephesians. So chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Very similar to what we're reading in Colossians. Paul is saying to Ephesus, my imprisonment, I am in prison for you Gentiles. I am in jail for the good of you Gentile believers. And to clarify it for him, he says, the reason he's in jail is because of the stewardship he has of God's grace given to him by God for the Gentiles. It's the stewardship of God's grace. This includes the Gentiles that are in Ephesus. This includes the Gentiles that are in Colossae. And this includes the Gentiles that are 2,000 years later in this room right now. This includes every single Gentile person who comes to Christ Jesus came to Christ because of Paul's stewardship, the stewardship given by God to Paul. That's why Paul is in prison. So, so that us, 2,000 years later, the people at Risen Hope could dive deep into this mystery and embrace it with joy. That's why Paul's in prison. We can't afford to disconnect that. We can worship God and love God because of this mystery, because Paul, 2,000 years ago, with chains on his arms, wrote these letters. That's an amazing thing. God, in the mind and heart of Paul, when he inspired Paul to write these letters, did not do it without you reading it in mind. He had you in mind when he wrote this letter. When he wrote this entire book. Now Paul says that this mystery was made known to him by revelation. And this is the same mystery that he was talking about to the Colossians. Um, and just like in Colossians, this mystery isn't revealed by anybody but God. God is the one who reveals it. It isn't discovered by man. It isn't figured out by man like some sort of math equation. The source is God alone. It's God's mystery, and he reveals it when he decides to. And the only way Paul got it is because God revealed it. And so Paul continues in um, Ephesians 3, 4 with this. He says, when you read this, <clears throat> when you read what I've written you in this letter, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of, of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So next Sunday, God willing, we'll be looking at that first sentence again. It is very important. What gives God, Paul the right or the expectation to claim that anyone who reads what he's writing will be able to perceive the mystery of Christ? What gives him that right to claim that? Why does Paul have that expectation? God willing, we'll answer that next week. Um, but th this week, 
The mystery is what we're focusing on. So this mystery, Paul says, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It has been hidden for ages and generations. But now, through the apostles, through the, through the prophets, God is revealing it to his people. What is revealed? Well, Paul explains here. He says, the mystery is, is this. It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are members of the same body. Well, what body? What body is Paul talking about? Well, the body he's referring to here is, of course, the Jewish body. The difference, or the, the opposite of a Gentile. Um, the Jewish body of believers, the children of Israel. And this membership is a, this status as fellow heirs came through the gospel. It came through the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to verse 6. The gospel is what made this possible. And Paul's saying that the gospel is God's means by which the Gentiles are grafted into the Jewish body. They are the, the gospel is the instrument by which they became partakers of the promise. So the rest of our time today together will really be unpacking how that actually happened. How did God do that? And how does that connect to the statement we read in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory? So if you'd indulge me, <laughs> what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes just to recount why and how this happened. And to do that, we need to look at the story of God and man and start at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created man. And he loved man. He loved man. More deeply than you've ever loved in your life. He loved man. The first parents were Adam and Eve. They were made in God's image. Nothing in the universe had been made in, in God's image. They were. They had hearts that knew his design for the universe and that knew his law for how things ought to be in the world. And they had hearts that knew that he loved him. Or he loved them deeply. God in this state, in Eden, was with man. They personally enjoyed his presence and his love without any worry or concern that it would ever go away. But that love that he had for them was not returned. It was not returned by them. They sinned against God by refusing to trust him and by, in fact, desiring to be God themselves. And so when man fell, the nearness to God was severed. It was fractured. He became estranged from God. Humanity was alienated from God in the most profound way. From that moment on, all humanity, all humanity who would come from that one man, Adam, would be sinful, would be broken, and would be condemned. All humanity. Not a single exception. Everyone who came from Adam is afflicted by Adam's guilt and infected by Adam's rebellion. They are afflicted by Adam's condemnation and guilt, and they are infected by his desire to be God instead of to bow to God. And the story at this point should have ended right there, Genesis 3. That should have been the end of the story. There's no way this can get recovered. But God 
still loves man. And he makes a promise. He tells Eve that he's going to send a Savior. He's going to send a Christ. And that promise throughout the book of Genesis is materialized in God's dealing with one man and one family. That man's name is Abraham. And from Abraham, God's dealings with them, his interactions with them, his relationship with them would form the people of Israel, the people of God. So God took for himself a part of humanity and said, I'm going to have this part. It's mine. And I think we can domesticate, we can get so familiar with this book that that isn't amazing, that that isn't remarkable. It is huge that God took for himself humans and said, you're my people. I will make you my people. We assume that it should just happen that way. It should not have happened that way. It did not need to. It only happened because God loved us, loved man still. And these people, the Israelites, were his own people. Everything that was given to them by God was made so that it would be clear that they were God's people. To make them utterly distinct, utterly separate from every other human on the planet. (laughs) And this effectively created the greatest division in human history. There isn't any ethnic, national, cultural geographic division that is greater than this. This is the greatest division in human history. When, Paul, when, when, when God called a people his own people, everything changed. And the children of Israel, the Jewish people, were given God's covenants. They were given God's promises. They were given his law. Before, the law had only been written on the hearts, the consciences. God gave them sentences and words that clearly said this is how the universe should run. This is how humanity should conduct business. And he gave them ordinances and commands that would separate them from the rest of the world very clearly. They would become set apart. They would become holy. They would be a witness for the rest of the world that this people group, God is with them. The one true God is with, with this people. And everyone else who's not marked by these distinctions, do not possess God's law in the same way. They do not possess his covenants. They do not possess his promises. And those people are called Gentiles. And they are the rest of the human race. Everyone except for that one family. This is how Ephesians 2.12 describes the Gentiles. Paul says to the Gentile believers in Ephesus, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the default state of the Gentile race. That's the default state of humanity before anything like the gospel infiltrated it. The people of Israel were God's people. They alone had the covenants. They alone had the promises. They had the hope that one day there would be a Christ. And (laughs) the Gentiles had none of this. There was no Christ for the Gentile. There was no hope for them. And Paul goes as far to say they were without God in the world. 
And that's not all. This division between the two people groups, between the Israelites and the Gentiles, led to enmity between them. It led to racism and hatred between these two groups, the Gentiles and the Jews. Whether you consider the slavery that's recounted in this book um, by the Egyptians to the early Israelite nation thousands of years before Christ Jesus, or whether you consider thousands of years later Hitler's concentration camps, there has been across history, atrocity after atrocity, hatred between these two groups, enmity between them. And it isn't just directed by the Gentiles to the Israelites. The Israelites, for example, this enmity is is mutual. It's both-sided. The people of Israel built their temple, and when they did that, they erected a wall called the Wall of Division. It was a wall that was in the outer courts, and the wall said, no Gentiles beyond this point. No Gentiles beyond this point. They cannot go into the temple. They cannot proceed any further. And on this wall, it was inscribed, if you're a Gentile and you cross this, your blood is on your head. Your blood is on your head. In fact, it says, this is literally what it says, you are personally responsible for your own ensuing death. And they would stone them right there. In fact, this almost happens to Paul for other reasons in the book of Acts. The separation between these two people could not, people group could not be deeper, could not be more profound. There was no peace, not only between mankind and God, but there was no peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> and there was no hope, no hope for reconciliation. Neither of them would ever love, oh, but here's the thing. They, they had one thing in common. There's one thing that the people of God, the Israelites, and that the Gentiles had profoundly in common. And it's this, neither of them would ever love and trust God the way they ought to. Neither group. Both of them would rebel against him with or without the written law. Both of these groups would prove that man still dishonored God and they would cast him aside for every other object of worship imaginable. And why is this? Why, why would both the, the people of God, the Israelites, and the Gentiles respond to God in the same way despite having different contexts? Well, the reason why is this. No matter the promises, no matter the covenants, no matter the law, all of these people still came from one man. Adam. They still came from Adam. They were still born of Adam, and that means they were still infected with his sin and his condemnation and his desire to dishonor God. They were still afflicted with his guilt. Jew and Gentile were both sinners. That's what Romans 3 is in the Bible for. Even God's law being written down could not prevent that from being the case. And so again, I have to remind you, the story should be over at this point. The story should be over. This is where the story should end. People, people sometimes complain about the length of the Bible. Like it's really big and it's got a lot of stuff in it. But the Bible only goes on so long because God is so good and he doesn't give up on us. That's why the Bible is the way it is. Failure after failure, after failure, yet every page is God refusing to give up on us. Every single page, grace upon grace upon grace, God is saying, I don't give up on you. I won't give up on you. I won't give up on you. I'm still coming for you. I still love you. But at this point, it's clear in the story, it's very clear that it's going to take something infinitely 
more powerful than simply working with man as he currently is. It's going to take something infinitely more radical than simply dealing with the children of Adam the way they are, with a rule or an ordinance or a law. And that infinitely radical something is the mystery of Christ. It is the mystery of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, he's talking to Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, made Jew and Gentile both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says the mystery is this. God obliterated the distinction between Jew and Gentile by doing what? By creating an entirely new humanity. A completely new human in Christ Jesus. A new Adam. And unlike the first Adam, this new man would never, ever, ever, ever dishonor God. He would always love and adore his father. He would never fail to trust him. He would never ignore his father's glory. In fact, he would lay hold of his, all of his people, both Jews and Gentiles, <coughs> and he would form from them a new humanity that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. No longer is there Jew or Gentile. No longer is there Jew or Gentile. But all who are in Christ are free from the curse of Adam, and they all have complete, unfettered access to the blessings of Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of the book of Ephesians. If you start at the beginning and read all the way through, you'll see that. We have, all of us, have access to the blessings of God through Christ Jesus. The mystery is this. An entirely new man was created in Christ Jesus. When God the Son entered into human history, he did so as the second Adam, the last Adam. And his perfect obedience under the law and his full bearing of the sins of those who couldn't follow the law, they couldn't obey the law or keep the law, opened our way into paradise. This was the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. This is the mystery of Christ. And according to Ephesians and Colossians, God, his purposes are revealing it to his saints right now. That's his purpose in this. Now, how does God do this? It says the gospel. The gospel is God's mechanism, his means for revealing the mystery to Jew and to Gentile. The gospel is the center of God's story. It is the apex of God's story. It is God's instrument for applying all of the benefits that that mystery tells us exist. That's what it is. And here's how. The gospel tells us that God loved man to the very end to the very end, even when we resisted him to the point of killing him, God still loved us. God came for us, and he did not stop. Through 
thorns and nails and a tree, God still loved man. That's what the gospel tells us. And we know this gospel has secured for us the hope of glory. Part of that hope we talked about earlier is that Christ rose and therefore one day we will certainly rise. Death is not the end. We will be with God forever. Eden will be restored one day, a thousandfold, and God's people will never sin again and will never suffer again, ever. We will always be with him. But Paul isn't saying that in Colossians. He's not saying that explicitly here. That future is true and certain. And we should never, ever doubt it. We should have absolute confidence that if our faith is in Christ Jesus, it is as good as ours. But that's not all that Paul is saying here. Ephesians 2.22 tells us why this mystery isn't just a future reality. It is a present reality, and it is for us today. Ephesians 2.22 says this, In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God. That is an amazing thing. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, and we really just need to take a a second to think about what this means. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you right now. The Spirit of Christ Jesus. The Spirit of the living God is inside of you right now, in the deepest parts of your being, even in the parts of you where there are secrets that you've kept for years. He is all the way down deep. The one who created and sustains every molecule in existence, the one who has all rule and all authority, is inside of you. The great I am Yahweh of hosts dwells inside of you. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 says this, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled with Christ. This isn't just a future promise. This is a present reality. In fact, there isn't anything, there isn't anything more important than knowing this and feeling this and recognizing what this is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So why is this so important? Why did God do this? Why would God give us his spirit? He didn't need to do that. You could tell the story without that. Why did he give us His spirit, the fact that Christ dwells in us is profound. We could draw many implications about why that is. But I want you to think about this. There's got to be an ultimate reason, an ultimate purpose for God doing this. Why does the mystery of Christ center on the reality of God dwelling inside of human beings? Weak, broken vessels that still struggle with sin, that still struggle with fevers, that still struggle with frustrations, that still struggle with all the different limitations here, God says, I'm taking up residence inside you. I will tabernacle in you. Why? 
I believe Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 actually holds the reason. All believers, every single believer, has the Spirit of God in them. They have Christ in them. Paul here in this text, in Ephesians 3, this prayer that I'm about to read, Paul knows that the most difficult challenge for these Christians is to fully comprehend what that means. God in you. That's impossible to know. And therefore, we need God to make it so to you. He desires that the Ephesian church and us reading this letter 2,000 years later know the significance, the full significance of what it means for Christ to be in us, to dwell in us. And Paul is desperate for them to see it and to feel it. And to be perfectly honest, this is my prayer for us. Listen closely. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God, the love of Christ. He says that in order to know how much Jesus Christ loves you, the only way I can communicate that to you is by filling you with me is by filling your body with the fullness of God. He is praying, God, please give them the strength to comprehend. Notice he doesn't say intellectual capacity. Notice he doesn't say a a comprehensive understanding of theology. He says what they need to know the love of God is strength. They need to be filled with, to the brim with God. This kind of love, this magnitude of love can only be known with Christ dwelling in us. There is no other way. God could not communicate the greatness of his love to us in the way that he desired without filling us with his presence. And it is unbelievable. And consider how Paul describes this love. (laughs) The love that we see here surpasses all knowledge surpasses every aspect of knowledge. There's no way you can know it in a way that actually completes it and comprehends it properly. It defies any attempt to measure it or compass it. And in order to fully experience it, we have to recognize that it is, the words he uses here are immeasurable and unsearchable in different parts of of, uh, Ephesians. In order to fully experience it, it takes a divine act of God to fill you with his spirit. And he does this despite all that has happened in the story we just recounted. All that has happened in human history. All that has happened from Adam's rebellion on. Despite long ages of rebellion, despite our enmity and hostility towards God, despite the enmity and hostility between um, Gentiles and Jews, God gives us himself. 
He doesn't hold back. The fullness of God. I'm not leaving anything on the table. I want you to have all of me. And we have this mystery, this powerful mystery of Christ, chronicled in this book. This is our access to the mystery. Page after page after page, over and over and over again in this book, God is saying to us, I love you. 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 I still love you. I'm coming for you. And the only way for us to see it and feel it as it ought to be felt is for God to fill man to the brim, to the top, overflowing with his spirit, his own spirit, the spirit of Christ Jesus. That's the only way, the only way we will know his love. And so as we take communion today, what I would like for us to do, if if you're a believer, the table is open to you, I would like us to worship this God. Christ Jesus, for us to realize that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us to have the spirit of the living God inside of us, for us to be dwelt with by God himself. We should think that's impossible. We really should. I think it's a travesty that we don't, we've heard it so many times. It's ridiculous. It is absurd that God would do this. And I don't know about you, but my life isn't the kind of life that I would invite God into. My dispositions, my attitudes, my actions, none of that, none of that is what I would invite God into. God says, no, I don't, I've got that covered. I want in. I want in. I will fill you beyond your ability to even understand it. That's the only way you will know how much I love you. And so as we take communion, we just need to recognize that the reason a sinner like me and us can enjoy that reality is because of what he did on the cross. That is the only way. I'm going to read the rest of Paul's prayer here in just a second to close. And I want you to listen to what he says. It is impossible for this to happen. It should not be. But Paul prays this prayer. Listen to what he says. After asking for God to have Christ dwell in the hearts of the believers so that they might understand the the width, the length, the depth of his love, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, and can think according to the the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He is able to do far more abundantly than we can even ask for or even think, which means that this is now on the table. Him filling us with His Spirit is possible now. It should not be, but it is because of who God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want this so much for Risen Hope. I want this for me. I want this for my friends here. I want to know the love of Christ. 
And the only way that that can happen, the only way that that can happen is if you fill us completely with your Holy Spirit. You give us your Holy Spirit so that we might have in us the fullness of God. Father, this kind of love is the kind of love that could fuel decades of our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of missions, our pursuit of your glory, our pursuit of people in this world that need to hear the gospel. If we just tasted it, Father, if we could just taste your love for us. And so my prayer today is that we would be completely overwhelmed by a powerful exertion of your spirit on our hearts, that we would know the love of Christ, that we would experience the fullness of your love for us, and that you would use that as the means by which we would go out of this place and glorify your name in word and deed, and we would be your people in Christ Jesus, Father. That's my prayer for today, Lord. Please make it so. As we worship in communion, as we worship in song, cause our hearts to feel and know the love of your Son and your own love. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.